This is Beyond Governance with Dr. Nimrod Mbele on 101.9 High FM. Good evening and welcome to tonight's show. My name is Nimrod Mbele and thanks for participating in all this cold evening here in Johannesburg. Uh, winter is uh, certainly creeping in very nice and slowly. Uh, you need to, you need to, yeah, okay, there you are. Uh, thank you, my brother. I just did. Oh, thank you, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the, the joys of working from home. <laughs> on that note, let me just quickly again, just, you know, thanks, um, you know, for tuning in on this really nice cold weather. Um, and one of the things that we need to be very proud of as South Africans is the fact that, um, um, you know, we are, we often reach out to the most vulnerable and poor. And for me, the, the, the whole coronavirus issue has brought or has sort of ignited the spirit of the wound. You know, we've seen government, we've seen private sector and ordinary people, uh, dig deep into the pockets to lend a helping hand. And for me, this is quite phenomenal. And I'm sure most South Africans will agree with me on that particular issue. Uh, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, we have now entered into our 33rd day into the lockdown and we have now moved, uh, into uh, phase four of the lockdown, which is somehow not so much, so much different from, from stage five, but it was a bit of a sense of relief that we gradually move in towards the space where we need to be at, you know. Uh, I think it's also important that we often give credit, uh, where credit is due. On that note, let's again commend the sterling work done by government in the sense that government has been able to communicate with clarity, sense of purpose, and an agency that is required. In the same vein, let's also acknowledge the work done by the unions, political parties, uh, for supporting government strategy to, you know, to, to care COVID-19. And finally, finally, it's very important that we pay homage to our, to our, to our health workers for sacrificing their lives, uh, and, and, you know, keeping the, the, the spread of virus as, as we know. Once again, you, you know that, you know, for conversation, please join us on a via SMS line if you can, 34519, that's our SMS line. Our telegram is 061-895-1095. And I will definitely do an honor by returning your emails via the email address, which is nimrod at high.co.za. Before we start the show, I think it's always useful for us to reflect on issues that are quite important. And as I was preparing for tonight's show, and I asked myself this one big question. What is it that we are experiencing as a legacy of the previous administration? Can we look at the socio-economic collapse of the current administration without reflecting on the Zoom administration? For an example, let's look at SAA. SAA is about to retrain almost 10,000 you know, uh, people, and they are in debt. So surely, uh, I mean, 10, almost 10,000 people haven't lost their jobs within a very short space of time. It's appalling. And this can only be reflective of the previous administration. And this is where South Africans really need to take ownership and, and say never again shall we sit and see administration collapsing to a point where it is collapsed. Moving on, um, I think on the particular issue, tonight we're unpacking stimulus package of about 500 billion rands that was announced by the president last week. 
in making sense of this uh, very important topic, I'm joined online by Professor Bona Mahale, who is a, a Chancellor of the University of the Free State and the Chairperson of Bedvest Group. And I'm also joined by Ellen Mukoki, who is the CEO of the South African Chamber of Commerce and Industry. And later on, um, time permitting, we'll be joined by Alex Stillerman. Let me take this opportunity once again to welcome the colleagues and say, um, how are you guys? We're fine, we're fine, Nimrod, and how are you doing? Thank you very much, Ellen. I appreciate it. Um, the line is much better than the last time we had a conversation. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Thank you very much. Dadam uh, Hali, um, this is not a first turnaround that we are seeing, albeit under different circumstances. Back in 2019, the president had a turnaround strategy, um, which was which which was accompanied by some some kind of a stimulus package. Um, the package obviously looked at youth, women, and small businesses. Um, if I recall vividly, the plan covered four broad parts. Firstly, it was the implementation of growth-enhancing economic reforms. Secondly, reprioritization of public spending to support job creation. Thirdly, it was the establishment of infrastructure fund. Fourthly, it was the addressing of urgent and pressing matters in education and health. Fifthly, investing in municipal social in, uh, infrastructure project. So what we have had last Tuesday, in my view, is a build-up or should be a build-up of what the president spoke about last year. But where are we? Let's firstly assume um, veil of ignorance because we can't proceed to the 2020 uh, package, um, stimulus package without acknowledging what the president spoke about last year. Can you quickly reflect on that and that you're absolutely correct. So the five, not just four things that the president um, announced at that time was part of the advent of the new dawn where the focus was going to be on economic growth but on unity of the party as well as renewal. So where we are now is, yes, we have been caught between the rock and the hard place where we are in the throes on the one hand of the nine years of state capture. Secondly, where we are in the throes of a technical recession. Number three, where Moody's has just downgraded us to beyond investment grade. And then lastly, of course, COVID-19, which is pandemic and by definition is quite global. But you see on Tuesday evening, the 22nd of April, the president announced both wide-ranging and far-reaching raft of measures that cover almost everyone, especially the most vulnerable. He once again demonstrated truly extraordinary leadership in grappling with the fact that pandemics such as COVID-19 can and do push communities and populations further into poverty and that we all collectively have not succeeded in eradicating the legacy of apartheid, therefore must work very hard to ensure that the most vulnerable are indeed protected by implementing these winning war strategies to beat COVID-19. So I was personally moved beyond ways by the quantum of 500 billion, the Minister of Finance says, when you add it collectively, it's up to 800 billion relief, social relief and economic support package 
to, amongst others, singularly focus on a truly extraordinary health budget to respond to the virus, but specifically targeting the relief of hunger and social distress, support for companies and workers, and a commitment to the phased reopening of the economy the, the following Thursday when he speaks to us. So a lot of thought went into the comprehensive package that wrapped together already announced initiatives, among others, of tax relief, the release of disaster relief funds, emergency procurement, wage support through the UIF, and funding to small businesses. All of these for the relief of hunger and social distress in our communities, protection of the wages of workers, and extended support to SMMEs. Literally, back to you. Thank you very much, Prof, uh, for that uh, insight. But I just want to bring in uh, Ellen Mokoki here, because I think you've made a very interesting observation by stating that we're looking at about 800 billion, right? not so much about 500 billion. But, you know, the, the, there's, in this country, as we all know, there's often a, a disjuncture between policy pronouncement as well as the execution. From a business point of view, Ellen, what are the levers that the president needs to activate to give assurance and confidence that the 800 billion rands that have been set aside will indeed you know, manifest or indeed bring relief not only for relief, but also, um, you know, stimulate the economy to a point where we can all be satisfied that indeed there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Well, thank you, uh, Nimrod, and, uh, and to Wonang as well. Uh, well, I don't know. First, let's get through the numbers. I mean, the president only announced 500 billion. It's only the other day when we're speaking, when we're listening to the uh, finance minister, he started speaking about 800 billion. It's not sort of like moving uh, the chairs on the deck of the Titanic. It's neither here nor there. You know, in the final analysis, when you're running a business or when you're running uh, any organization, it's about cash flow. It's about getting money in that's coming from operations. And what is the operations of government? It can only be CIT, corporate income tax, personal income tax, and uh, indirect taxes via VAT, customs, duties, that whole number of areas and they come directly from GDP growth because, you know, you, you can only tax people because you're actually creating some kind of value in the economy. So in the end, I think the application of funds is the next argument in respect of what you're asking. How is the money actually going to be used? But we can't go there before we deal with the issue of the source of funds. You know, where's the money going to come from? Because you can't make money. So the longer you borrow money that you are not actually going to be able to pay, you need to then stop and say, oh, wait a minute. We we know that way we are, and we have to do the things that we're doing. But we shouldn't necessarily get ahead of ourselves in in terms of celebrating a situation where we believe we believe we can uh, we believe we we can raise the money or we can reallocate money. That money when it was there. It was there for a particular purpose, and it would not have been enough in any event for the previous purpose. So now we're forced into a situation precisely because COVID-19 is here. It's a global phenomenon. There isn't anything and there isn't a lot of room to maneuver in respect of what South Africa could or should have done. Um, could or should have done. So it is proper that we should do the things that have been done, and the president has acted 
quite correctly. But in the final analysis, we've created another problem. We have not actually solved any problem. In other words, the one problem that we have around the pandemic needed to be mitigated, and it's quite correct, but you need to place people into lockdown. Once people are in lockdown, they're not going to work. Hunger is going to emanate. People are going to lose jobs. Businesses are going to, you know, have to lose employees and, uh, and retrench people, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And in that particular situation, you do need to have some kind of relief measure that's going to go into businesses and it's going to go into, into people, whether they are employed or not employed. But in the final analysis, it's almost like borrowing uh, against the family jewels and the family silver uh, in the hope that you can, uh, in the hope that you can, uh, in the hope that you can, uh, in the hope that you can at least manage, in the hope that you can at least manage to stem the problem but when you don't know whether the problem is a temporary problem and a long-term problem, it creates another problem because you may well soon run out of the cash in the final analysis. So we, we, we acknowledge, and yet as business, we have to accept that the, the president did not have a lot of room to maneuver. As Bonang was saying, you were hit by three evils all at the same time. You went into a technical recession. Uh, whilst you were dealing with that, you then found yourself in a situation of having to do the lockdown because you are dealing with mitigating the pand- against the pandemic. And then thirdly, you then get into a downgrade where you get uh, to a junk status. Any one of these three evils would have caused significant problems for the South African economy. Now you have all three of them in combination, and you are now trying to juggle and figure a way of, can I sell the lunch suite? Can I sell the TV? Can I sell? Let me tell you the truth. Do not pretend that you are not selling the TV. Do not pretend that you are not actually dipping into future savings, even money that you may have needed for your children's school fees tomorrow. You are doing that. But that's because you are forced to do these things because there isn't money lying around all over the place. So in the final analysis, my, my point is we then need to do the things that are permanent. We need to really restructure the economy. We need to fix the problems that the ratings agencies are actually raising. We need to do the things that we needed to do so that when we have these kinds of storms coming into the future, because nobody knows whether this is the first or the last pandemic. We don't know whether just because something like this last happened in 1918 is going to take another 100 years to happen. We don't know that. It may be another five years, six years, seven years. So we need to really ramp up our capability in respect of being able, in respect of being able to to do things properly so that in future we can actually withstand in future in future we can actually withstand uh, the difficulties that are happening that we now have to fix uh, from time to time but I think that we need to have that conversation post the lockdown in terms of how do we restructure South Africa, how do we do these things that need to be done, which are going to be permanent over a 10, 20, 30-year period, we have the National Development Plan. Where is it? Someone needs to go grab it, dust it off. We've got the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. We've got all these things that we need to have a very clear plan that is executionable, and we need to make sure that we resource that plan so that we're able to deal with all the structural and permanent problems that South Africa faces. Thank you very much, Alan, for that uh, view, and I, I completely agree with you. I mean, firstly, you raise a very important point about the, 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 the source of income. Obviously, government, in my view, would obviously borrow against the World Bank, International Monetary Fund, BRICS, as, and as, as, as well as the South African Development Bank, you know. But 
the, the biggest issue or the biggest question which most people are asking themselves, I'm sure that the one I would obviously give a heads up here, is the fact that because you've been downgraded, uh, it, it, it raises other ramifications which, ca- if we are not careful about, we might find ourselves in more deeper waters than we are in at the moment. What's your take on that, uh, Prof? You know, Ntate Mukoki is absolutely spot on, and I could not agree with him more because we know that we currently don't have 500 or 800 billion. One of the things that we had to do against our own ideology by labor and politicians is now we are forced to go cap in hand to the IMF and the World Bank, these multilateral institutions, uh, to go and borrow so soon when we thought that actually we were doing okay. But the third arm is we are beginning to harness internal resources in the form of big business. There are slightly more than 400 listed entities on the JSE. So a solid incentive is that for taxpayers who donate to the Solidarity Fund will now be able to claim up to an additional 10% as a deduction from their taxable income, thereby demonstrating that the economic strategy going forward will require a new social compact among all social partners, government, business, labor, and civil society to do what? To restructure the economy and achieve this elusive, inclusive socioeconomic growth and transformation founded on fairness, on empowerment, justice, and equality. I mean, look at how we are proposing to use the money. Ndatim Koki is right to stem the tide of hunger. I mean, the package includes a temporary six-month COVID-19 grant, directing $50 billion towards relieving the plight of those who are most desperately affected by the pandemic. Child support grant will be increased by 300 rand in May, and from June to October, an additional 500 rand each month, while all other grant beneficiaries will receive an extra 250 rand a month for the next six months. In addition, a special COVID-19 social relief of distress grant of 350 a month for the next six months will be paid to individuals who are now unemployed and do not receive any other form of social grant or UIF payment. So we are not even talking about the production side of the economy. We are talking about the consumption side of the economy amongst those that are the most vulnerable amongst us. Let me end by saying... You know, Ntatemukoki raises the issue of we don't know when the next uh, pandemic is going to hit us. But what we do know for sure is that the virulence and the frequency is increasing. Remember, we had SARS, the bed flu, we had MARS, we had H1N1, um, mostly Southeast Asia. But this is the first time that the whole world is united against one com- common enemy. First World War, Second World we were all forced to two sides. This side we have chosen to be on the side that is against the coronavirus, the 2019 strain. Thank you very much, my Prof. Um, very interesting point that you're raising. Firstly, I mean, uh, the fact that we are forced to harness internal uh, capacity, i.e. Um, through different tax breaks and tax measures, I suppose it is commandable. Um, but one of the issues that you raised, which I think is quite important, is that uh, consumption has, has a limited phase. Um, we need to get the economy to more production sort of things. 
which has been the biggest problem of this country. We are not producers, we are consumers. You know, part, part of any turnaround strategy would have to gear um, the economy to, to more production. We look at mining, look at manufacturing. Uh, the Koki is, 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 is leading one of the, you know, uh, uh, economy or, or entities that that seeks to foster the production side of the economy. But the question I suppose is, why, what is it that we need to do differently to activate production? Because it is through production, particularly in small, in small businesses, more, where we are likely to, you know, bring more and more job opportunities. How do we get the economy to be more on a productive side of things? As opposed to consumption, because consumption, um, it is just that consumption, and it's not sustainable. Well, I suppose the the, the question is is uh, directed to me, Nimrod. Uh, <laughs> well, there are not shortcuts with these things. You know, these things are not shortcuts. We we keep complaining about the fact that the new ANC government came in 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 '94. You know. Uh, 25 years, 6 years, whatever the case might be, and not much has happened. It's because you can't do a, a band-aid. You can't do patchwork uh, all the time that you're dealing with issues. You need to have a very long range, long-term planning around the things that you need to be able to do. And, and, and it's not because you have to go recreate new templates. You've got the World Economic Forum that has uh, very clearly articulated the, 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 what, what they refer to as the Global Competitiveness Index Report. And in that, they put the four support categories, starting with the creation of an enabling environment. So long before you start to say we want to produce, you need to be able to answer these ba- very basic structural issues around how you are organized and how you are formed. And if you have created the enabling environment and underneath there, you have things like institutions and uh, our ability in respect of infrastructure and across all these lines of infrastructure, whether it's rail infrastructure, telecoms infrastructure, dams, you know, the blue economy, all these things. So these things, they actually start there. But underpinning all of that, other than the issues of political stability and having the correct environment at the macroeconomic uh, policy, is to ensure that you have the human capital that is required, the investment in people, Right, we keep making the statement all the time that in the last 200 years, uh, only around eight non-Western countries have moved from being developing uh, economies to becoming developed economies. Amongst those are, you know, countries like South Korea, Taiwan, the old Hong Kong, you know, Russia, Australia, and uh, and uh, and places like that. So when you look at those uh, places, you then have a template in respect of. What is this that the South Koreans uh, did? And many of them, well, outside of maybe Australia and Russia, they don't have a very high level of uh, natural resource endowment that South Africa has. We start there because right now our primary economy is based largely on digging things out of the ground, whether they are metals or minerals, and then exporting them or actually plants and then in agri and then sending them out. We're not doing a lot of processing we should be doing. We're not doing a lot of value adding we should be doing. But before you do that, you need to then answer the questions as to whether your environment exists because a lot of these things are not things that you are going to be doing yourself because you are initiating that level of technology. There are many technologies that exist in the world, and in a number of cases, you can actually try to bring the technology into South Africa with uh, joint ventures. You can do royalty agreements. You can do licensing agreements. But no one is going to give you access to their technology if they don't necessarily think that your market makes sense 
number one. And number two, you have the skills and the capabilities in your economy that will then enable you to be able to drive at that level. So this piece around human capital is very much significant. We also need to get into the third piece, which is around the markets, because when we talk about markets, it's around the product market. We talk about they, not us, at least the World Economic Forum. You then start out with talk about the labor market. And sometimes people get their, their, their wires crossed around what we, we, we refer to as labor market. It's not so much labor market, whether it's rigid or, or something, but it's its efficiency. It's not so much because someone wants to complain about Kosatu or whoever. It's a question of, do we have the skilled labor force that is highly productive, that can use and get into technologies that they need to have to be able to generate and grow this productive uh, cycle? So I, I was listening to one of the ANC politicians the other day, and he was talking about we need to what COVID-19 pandemic has actually done is to actually uh, expose uh, the fault lines in South Africa that were actually importing too many goods in the health sector. We're importing almost 70% of what we were consuming there. But before you get to that point, you then need to address that issue of labor market efficiency. You need to address the issue of the size of your market. Because people are going to come and say, I want to put in plant and equipment in your country because you've got the size of the market. Now, we made the mistake, I think. We continue to make that mistake. Because for business itself, us as business in particular, for many years, we sort of like looked at the issue of transformation as a garage buy. You know, we always say that people don't buy, don't, don't wash or rent a car. It was always a compliance issue. It was always a garage thing, like the government wants us to drive transformation. Without us realizing that we're actually measured on this very piece of transformation because it relates to political and social instability, it also raises this issue of economic growth. Because had we not ignored these swabs of women there's many black people who happen to be in the country that should be markets, right? We need to have a standard bank that is 10 times its size in South Africa alone if we actually have done something about making sure that we get money into the hands of these many future consumers who happen to be black. So we didn't drive and do the job very well in driving the issue of transformation as a business imperative, not so much as a crutch, because, you know, the government wants me to do it. It's very critical if you're in business, that I'm growing markets and I've got a bigger market and Africa comes into play very, very quickly into that. And then you've got a piece around innovation in terms of have we created an environment to drive that level of innovation. So all these pieces of things that are very permanent, that all these organizations that are, are international organizations, when they look at us and they measure us, they keep referencing, you are not doing enough in those particular areas because these are the things that actually give you a level of sustainability insofar as driving the investment story forward. Because when I pitch to you that I'm able to do certain things, it's a lot more easier for me to bring the money into the country because we know we can actually plug and play in a way that is very, very quickly. And I don't face social and political instability with so many people who are actually unemployed. I start to get very worried if I'm going to invest in a country and I'm not so sure what is the social and political dynamic in that particular environment from a stability point of view. So we need to work on these things and not do band-aid and actually really stretch the envelope in terms of, I don't know what happened to the National Development Plan because, you know, you know, we can't go to maybe once at SONA, we talk about it, and then as soon as SONA is finished, we put it in the, into, the, into the drawers and nobody actually ever says, this plan is being resourced in this particular way. How are we giving a performance review on a regular basis, whether it's monthly or quarterly, in respect of how we're doing around that. So somehow as South Africans have forgotten that this document actually exists that was supposed to be the plan. 
So what are we having now? We can't be having band aid stories. Let me stop uh, here for now. Thank you very much, uh, you know, uh, Ellen, for a very uh, intriguing thought process. I want to give Ndade Mahale and a chance just to reflect on some of the issues that you've raised. Prof, your chance. Letebele, uh, you know, to add to what Ndade Mukoki has said, it's now estimated that this COVID-19 is going to decimate our GDP growth and contract by anything from 6 to 8%. In the first six weeks of just this year, we have lost more than 10,000 jobs in just six weeks. MassMart has now moved from 15 mega warehouses to only seven. We heard that 600 spa stores are not going to open after uh, the COVID-19. Sun International says two of their flagships uh, are not going to open, the one in the free state and the one just outside of Pretoria. But Sun City, as we speak, is absolutely close to 1,500 workers whose job it is to mow the lawn, to do the cleaning and the laundry, uh, don't have jobs. So one thing that we know for sure is that uh, we are now entering a new normal. For instance, with the price of crude oil pegged to the U.S. of, of $8, and now with the collapse of crude oil, that's going to be lower for longer. At some stage, it hit minus 37 U.S. dollars to the barrel. Um, yesterday, it was 13 U.S. dollars to the barrel. And most countries and most energy companies need a band of 60 to 80 U.S. dollars per barrel for them just to break even. Are we now likely to see the emergence of a new currency and with it, the creation of a new trading block or even blocks with the re-emergence of China and Russia forcefully inserting itself back onto the global agenda. Does this mean the displacement of the U.S. of A as a global police force and an honest arbiter of global conflicts? With the global lockdown, what about the incomplete project of globalization? One thing is certain, past assumptions are no longer accepted. Like, for instance, the stabilizing power of economic globalization. This notion of job security is gone forever. What about political liberalization? People are closing in. Environmental protection and technological innovation. All of these will have to be both reimagined and repurposed into creating a shared future in a fractured world by, amongst others, driving sustained economic progress, navigating a multipolar and multi-conceptual world, overcoming divisions in society and shaping the agile governance of technology. So we have always known in South Africa when we entered the, the national lockdown that we needed to balance on the one hand the medical imperative of trying to slow down the spread of COVID-19 with, on the other hand, the economic imperative of trying to keep our businesses running and maintaining sufficient levels of trade, of commerce and payments, which is the lifeblood of economic activity and fundamentally change our own human behavior in recognizing and accepting our interdependence and interconnectedness by demonstrating more gratitude, more care, more kindness, and continue to communicate with respect and indeed understanding. So for me, overcoming the spread of COVID-19, we have already addressed the three pillars of physical distancing, of self-quarantine, and working from home. The huge and deep 
structural inequalities have been laid bare for all of us to witness. Some hurdles that are uniquely South African include practicing social distance and preventative hygiene in a lived reality of the majority of our people finding themselves in in crowded dwellings with no access to flush toilets, no access to piped water, no access to electronic communication, relying on public transport and the use of public health facilities. Many with already heightened health and socioeconomic vulnerabilities, where many more face hunger, poor health, have pre-existing health conditions, have no medical aid, no insurance, have previously failed to find health care and find it difficult to save. So how then do we try to effect this required working from home with our public transport that's not yet safe, not yet accessible and affordable? Anyone getting into a taxi today with a laptop and a smartphone is likely to have these confiscated. Even with these seemingly insurmountable challenges, business must come together with government and labor and civil society. And how do we sign a new compact that will ensure all our collective survival? Thank you very much, Prof. Your last point, uh, it's something that I want us to hone in because you, you, earlier on you alluded to the fact that the social compact has been uh, elusive, um, and, and, and failing the inclusive agenda as it were. So it is quite important and obvious that the issues that, um, Ellen spoke about in terms of human capital, um, you know, the conducive environment, market efficiencies, the transformation agenda, uh, are underpinned by a new social compact. But Social compact, I would imagine everybody gets to know what the social compact is all about, but how do we get labor? How do we get business to commit uh, on structural reforms, which has been lingering for some time? Because I think that's the biggest challenge South Africans wants to hear. Um, can we have social compact without trade-offs? And what are these trade-offs are we looking at as a, as a people and the extent to which we are quite keen to understand that if we are sacrificing today, we are building for tomorrow. How do you, how do you go past that uh, colossal challenge? Well, you know, Nimrod, I think that uh, the first thing is that we, we need to be able to articulate a, a common vision of what South Africa should be or, or, or what it ought to be. Yeah? Uh, these things are very deep and interesting challenges. And just because you've got people who share... Uh, different perspectives given where they sit does not mean they cannot share, does not mean they cannot share a common, does not mean they cannot share a common perspective. Does not mean they cannot share a common perspective. Um, so in the final analysis, um, it means that, um, people can just understand. I mean, I think that there's no better person who explains this thing better than, um, that very famous, uh, Indian, uh, Nobel uh, Prize winner, um, who talks about three children who are fly- fighting over a flute. And he says that their names are Anne, Bob, and Carla. Uh, and Anne's argument is that she, of the three kids, is the one that can, that has the ability to play the flute. So therefore she should actually be the one who keeps the flute. Um, which means she's making the argument of a utilitarian, uh, economist. And then Bob, on the other hand, says, wait a minute, of the three of us, without uh, invalidating the claims of the other two, I'm the poorest of the three of us, 
and I cannot have money, and I will, my parents cannot afford to give me money to buy other toys, so I therefore am the only one who deserves the flute. And then the third person, the third person, the third person is arguing a different story. Uh, she says that, listen, I made the flute. It was my blood, sweat, and tears that actually made the flute. And this person is making a very different argument indeed. So the three children are exactly what you find in the context of South Africa and the South Africa's economy. And we need to be able to figure a way in which you can have a, a common platform and a common vision of what is the South Africa that we are building that should look like. Because social justice has got to be at the center and at the core of what it is that we're actually trying to do. Without social justice, you are not going to be able to create a very equitable you are not going to be able to create a very equitable uh, economic system. And it starts there, Nimrod, because if you say that the, the, how do you balance all the, the interest groups, equity is the only thing that balances all the interest groups, because then you can articulate to big labor what it is that it is in your interest. You can articulate to business or the shareholders or the investors what it is that is in, in your interest. You can uh, articulate to the broader society what it is. So we have to stop this idea of I want, I want, I want, everything must come to me because this is my sector to look at the whole. And that requires leadership, that requires vision, that requires all those people to be able to be singing from the same hymn book, and we need to be able to share that common uh, platform. Can these things be done? Of course these things can be done. They are not very complex in respect of how they ought to be done. It's us people in business who ought to be able to be transparent in the way in which we all ourselves deal with uh, with the labor, in the way in which we deal with the broader community, in the way in which we deal with the state or the government, we should not, ourselves as business, be trying to beat the system, be trying to beat the tax system, be trying to pay less tax because we can, because we can avoid paying when we know that the obligation is that we should pay. For the same reason, big labor should not be asking for increases that they ought to understand are not actually affordable, and they will actually keep many people outside of employment instead of having more people actually being employed. So all of us have got to a role to play and the state itself has a role to play where when you start having all these allegations of corruption and malfeasance, it, uh, it demotivates people because people start to think, well, I'm paying taxes, but someone is actually going to steal the money. So all of us, we need to reignite and reactivate the right values in respect of transparency, the discipline, the integrity that is required as part of that leadership culture so that we build a society that then enables people to see that I have stake in the game because if I put in the, the effort, I know that I'm going to get that which is due to me. Let me stop there for now. No, thank you very much. In fact, I actually like your, your last point around creating the right value, the right culture based on social justice. And, um, you know, there the are obviously a lot of, uh, a number of schools of thought. You can't have social justice when, uh, you know, the, the issues of trust. Uh, the biggest challenge South Africans uh, on the question of social of um, social compact has to bridge that element of trust, particularly when you're looking at the Zona Commission, for an example. Um, there's not much said about that particular issue. Don't you think that somehow exacerbate the pain of majority of people who feel that who feel um, uh, done under by the previous administration? I'll give that to the uh, prof. Uh, literally, because 
even labor now has investment companies, which is now business. And the fact that we went to the World Economic Forum and learned that trust in government is dwindling and indeed in politicians, but there's still some semblance of it in business. But also because the government does not have the money options for private sector participation is our only salvation in this current crisis. Therefore, what is the role of business uh, in that environment? I mean, business is the only social partner that has the wherewithal, but also the technical competence to deliver mega projects on time in full and on budget, and that's called project management. So today, business no longer really has a choice about declaring the values that they hold dear, values that they are dear to, and about making a vocal stand about these. It is now expected of them. Today, society believes that business now has a bit to drive positive social change. This illustrates a fast-shifting mood towards social justice in society's mindset. We have now entered the age where the weapon of mass destruction is social media. That has hugely empowered ordinary people to hold business finally accountable, but also their governments. As companies have grown in size and power, ordinary people are increasingly expecting more from them to drive positive change and to work towards the greater good rather than acting solely on the basis of businesses own agenda. This is an uncomfortable space for business to enter. Only making money was up until now the main pursuit of old business. But finding purpose is pivotal to the new business. Business must make the shift from a sales-based to a values-based way of thinking and doing. Business now has to answer to a very different type of stakeholder in this era, fence-sitting is no longer an option for business. But being ethical, visibly so, has now become mandatory. Literally. Prof, thank you very much. I like the last part as well. Uh, visible, uh, around visible, ethical leadership that business needs to display. But I think we can only get to the point when... Uh, where those who have erred, uh, they seem to be social justice in terms of bringing them to book and addressing historical imbalances and really pushing a global agenda around inclusive um, growth because um, for as long as we, 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 we have, you know, triple challenges, eyes in you know, as, as in uh, unemployment, uh, as the plight of the majority of South African. And unfortunately, this has to be based on the social compact that you've alluded to. But every parting ways, uh, Prof and, and uh, Ellen, the NDP, is it not time to reflect on the NDP as the basis from, from, from a strategic point of view and say we, we either need a revised NDP or how do we resource it because there should be the basis of any conversation and I like what Ellen said earlier that NDP is nowhere to be found in the narrative around the turnaround we have literally two minutes let's see if we can just wrap it up in two minutes well you know very quickly the NDP, I think, was overtaken because if you recall, you know, the, the United Nations is talking about the millennial, whatever, sustainable goals. 
And then we, we, I think we adopted the NTP in, in 13, 12, 13 or 14, so I think about 12, 2013. And then in 2015, the United Nations then changed and then they had the new sustainable development goals, which is the 17 goals. And I don't think that the NTP caught up with that new uh, imperative. So there are quite a number of things that happened all at the same time. And again, recall that the South African National Treasury tended to rely largely on what we always refer to as the so-called Washington Consensus for many years. It was until, I think, 2009 in London when the then Scotsman, who was the Prime Minister of England, Gordon Brown, threw this document out of the window and says this thing is not working because it's actually really creating significant problems for developing uh, economies. And I think they went in 2010 to Seoul and they established something new, which was the Seoul Consensus. So all these things we haven't actually kept in touch with, but quite clearly the NDP was supposed to be a very iterative document. It needed to be very flexible. It needed to be updated. But more than anything else, not not for it to be just a document. It needed to be owned by those people who are on the call phase of executing. So you need to be able to say, here's a plan, but here's the execution, here are the resources that I'm allocating to that. So it's not just a document that must just be there. And I think that we need to take out that document, brush it up, and have a look at what are those aspects in it that still remain very relevant today and update it and make sure that it becomes the plan of each and every government department, that we don't start from scratch every time and we don't do a band-aid thing. Thank you very much. That's um, um, Alan. Uh, as we close, let's get the uh, last point from Prof. Your last point, Prof, on this NDP issue. We will not go back to normal. Normal never was. Our pre-COVID-19 existence was not normal other than we had normalized greed, inequity, exhaustion, depletion, extraction, disconnection, confusion, rage, hoarding, hate and lack. We should not long to return. We are being given the opportunity to stitch a new government, one that fits all uh, of humanity. We know that reduced public spending leads to enhanced government creditworthiness, which leads to falling bond yields and which in turn leads to falling interest rates for all borrowers, which ultimately leads to increased private sector investment. Because government currently has no money, again, I repeat, our only salvation is business. Thank you, later. Thank you very much. Unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it at that point. That was uh, uh, Professor Bonang Mahale, who's the, who's the Chancellor at the University of the Free State, as well as the Chairperson of Bidrest. Uh, we also joined online by Alan Mukoki, who's the CEO of Sati. Gentlemen, once again, thank you very much. How I wish we have had more time to reflect deeper on these issues. Once again, thank you. It's been a pleasure to have you on board. Thank you, Nambra. Thank you, Bonang. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. Unfortunately, we, we're going to have to leave it there. That was an interesting conversation, as always, with you gentlemen that we've had. Until we meet again next week, same time, same place, it has been an absolute pleasure. In the meantime, do observe all the protocols related to COVID-19, and let's stay safe. I thank you, and good evening.